New Omicron subvariant BA5 shows an unparalleled ability to reinfect the previously infected. Pfizer and BioNTech announced a new trial for a, quote, universal COVID vaccine. Congress's new reform bill has made the single biggest expansion in mental health care in U.S. history. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. You hear the term gaslighting all the time these days. The term itself, gaslight, comes from a 1938 play by the same name. In the play, adapted for the big screen in 1944, a husband manipulates his wife by lighting and putting out a gaslight to make her question her own sanity so he can have her committed and steal her inheritance. Most of the time, though, people talk about gaslighting when there's a fundamental miscommunication of emotions. People feel gaslit when somebody doesn't fully embrace their experience. But gaslighting by institutions, where they systematically work to alter your perception of reality, that's happening all the time. When GOP politicians or gun rights activists tell us that the problem with gun violence is actually doors or our failure to arm teachers or mental health, that's gaslighting. When the Supreme Court tells us that they're taking away people's fundamental rights over their uteruses in order to return the issue of abortion to the people, that's gaslighting. When they tell us that a, quote, originalist understanding of the Constitution justifies unfettered access to automatic assault weapons when the framers of the Constitution only ever used muskets. That's gaslighting. But I digress. Today, I want to talk about how gaslighting has shaped science and why it still can happen today. We're taught to understand science as received wisdom, as a set of fundamental truths handed down to us by the ancients. That's because most of what we learn is what we call, quote-unquote, settled science, meaning that there's a pretty strong consensus among scientists that we've come to understand the fundamentals here. The problem, though, is that science is fundamentally about unsettling what we think we know, There is no received wisdom. Everything is open for question. And that's how science is meant to progress. We ask questions about how the world works, and then we design experiments to test those hypotheses with the goal of proving them wrong. If the experiment does prove them wrong, we adjust our hypotheses. If it doesn't, we take the given hypothesis as the best available explanation for how something works. That is, for now. But humans are not rational. We have feelings about things. We get comfortable with the status quo. There's ego and reputation involved. And some of us have vested interests in the world working the way we think it does. Today's experts, the ones who pose the hypotheses that are best supported, they're the ones with the most to lose if these hypotheses get disproven, which means that they're the ones most resistant to disproving them. They can use their power and their influence to push back against new hypotheses, to discredit the evidence supporting them, to discredit the people who propose them. And that's gaslighting too. And it too often pits scientists against science itself. Today, I want to bring you a story from the history of science that captures how that can work. The Wine Dark Sea Within is a new book by Dr. Dun Setna, who traces the discovery of human circulation. It's nearly impossible to overstate how important this discovery is. Heart attacks are the single deadliest disease in the U.S. and the world, and they're fundamentally a problem of circulation, whether or not blood gets to where it's supposed to to feed your heart. Strokes, same thing, but in the brain. But it took 150 years for the scientific establishment to accept nearly indisputable science. 150 years. This was back in the mid-1600s. Of course, we've come a long way since then. But it happened again 200 years later with Ignaz Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician who was driven out of medicine for arguing that doctors should wash their hands before they deliver live babies. Remember, doctors didn't wear gloves back then. And it happened again to Jon Snow the man credited with founding epidemiology itself, when he tried to explain that a London street pump was the source of the city's cholera epidemic. See, while we think of the absurd things people believed in the mid-1600s or mid-1800s as crazy and backward, 
the people living in that time thought of themselves as cutting edge and progressive, just like we think of ourselves. Imagine what our progeny will think of us 200 years from now. And it's that humility, the ability to recognize that we're not living at the end of history that matters most. We've just come through a pandemic that showed us just how little so many of our country people think of science. We've watched the Supreme Court gut an evidence-driven definition of fetal viability for an unsubstantiated argument that life begins when a sperm and an egg meet and robbed millions of basic bodily autonomy in the process. Scientific ignorance, gaslighting, is alive and well. And sometimes to see it play out in our own time, it's worth looking at how it played out in the past. Here's my conversation with Dr. Dunsetna. Um, can you introduce yourself at the tape? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Dan Sethna, and I'm a clinical and academic cardiologist. And for 15 years, I've also done cardiac anesthesia, which is uh, giving anesthesia for open heart surgery. And currently, I'm at the Karelian Clinic in Virginia, which is affiliated with uh, Virginia Tech. Dr. Sethna's new book, The Wine Dark Sea Within, is one of those books of history that helps explain our present. His sharp explanations of our understanding of blood from the ancients to the present captures a lot about what makes science so hard. Not just the work itself, but the explanation of the work to people who are resistant to it because they're bought into the status quo. The book was a really uh, fascinating insight into the, you know, the history of science around a part of our physiology that is fundamental, critical uh, to, to, to who we are, how we operate. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, I've always been interested in the history of cardiology, and uh, this is my first venture in non-academic uh, publishing. And I decided to select a topic which would make a good story, you know, have a beginning and an end, and at the same time would be a topic that would be of, of uh, significance in our understanding of the heart as we understand it today, and also have an impact in modern medicine. And one such topic is the discovery of the circulation of the blood, uh, which was done by uh, William Harvey in 1628. And the, the the story that you tell is really quite fascinating, right? Because um, blood is one of the most obvious things about the human existence inside of us, right? So if you see a person, it's not immediately clear that um, that they've got blood coursing through their veins until, of course, they get cut or they get injured. And, you know, the most common injury that anybody sustains from the time you're young is, you know, you fall, you skin your knee, you start bleeding, which, um, which opens up a, a really interesting set of perspectives on... Um, what this substance is and what it means for us. And, and that's the story you tell, I think, brilliantly in the book. Just for our listeners, I think it's helpful to understand some of the context, some of the physiology here. So what is blood and why is it so fundamentally, absolutely critical to us? Yes. Uh, well, uh, let me begin with an observation that uh, I guess even the first human being must have uh, noticed. And that is that... Uh, when you cut yourself as in an injury and you bleed, that you can bleed quite profusely. And when people bleed quite profusely, they die. Mm. So the first observation is that blood is something vital for life. Blood, uh, as traditionally, is a 
Its function is to transport uh, nutrition and oxygen to the tissues and carry the waste uh, uh, back again for elimination uh, through the lungs and through the kidney and the liver and the gut. Now that's the traditional idea about what blood does. But today we actually think of blood as an organ system Mm. because uh, it contains and carries also a lot of hormones, enzymes, and vital chemicals that are are critical for the function of the body. So uh, it is really an, an organ system. And uh, equally relevant, and that sort of brings us to the book itself, is that these constituents of the blood have to be transported to the tissues. And, and so the story of the book is, how does this transportation occur? What is the flow of the blood and how did it evolve into our current thinking that the blood actually circulates, moves in a circle from the heart to the periphery and back to the heart. You know, what's, what's fascinating, right, is that the, uh, the easy metaphor I always find for this is, is that you know, we all know the value of roads and bridges, right? I mean, there's a whole political discourse about do we rebuild our infrastructure? And that always means roads and bridges, because if you don't have them, you can't move around. And in some respects, the blood is that infrastructure for the for the body. It is the roads and bridges that take you from, you know, the the parts of the body that tend to get more of the attention, the organs, the buildings. Um, but if you can't if you can't get between them, uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite matter. And you know, the, the you mentioned there about excretion, and people don't usually think of their lungs as a uh, excretion mechanism. There are, you know, obviously two other ones that we we think about a lot more. But you know, every time we breathe out, there's something coming out, and folks don't really quite appreciate. It. We breathe in the oxygen, we breathe out the carbon dioxide, just as um, you know, our liver uh, and our um, gut systems, and then our kidneys uh, work on excreting, you know, other other compounds that are uh, produced in in the day to day of of our uh, activity. And then the other part of it that's really fascinating is that. It's not just that blood is is infrastructure. It's also that blood is self-correcting infla- infrastructure, right? It's got the means of its own correction inside of it. And there's really, really tight chemistry inside that that always was really fascinating to me, let alone being the, you know, the, the main um, bulwark of, of your immune system. I, I want to ask you, you know, as just so, so folks get the sense of how does blood move? Like, what, what is the circulatory pathway? How should we think about, you know, arteries and veins vis-a-vis the heart, vis-a-vis the the peripheral organs that um, are constantly getting perfused by blood? Well, uh, uh, that's a good question. And I think it's a, it's a great introduction to sort of briefly cover the, the history of how, how blood flows. Uh, the title of my book is The Wine Dark Sea Within. Uh, and that's a strange title, but it's a phrase, the wine dark sea, that's uh, taken straight out of Homer's a poem about the Trojan War, where he calls Mm. the Aegean Sea the Wine-Dark Sea. Now, uh, the Greeks uh, did think about a life-giving fluid uh, within the blood, Uh, I mean, within the body. And I guess standing on the shore and watching Homer's Wine-Dark Sea ebb and flow in the tides they uh, extended that analogy uh, to the body. 
And really the first uh, uh, theory of blood flow is just that. And that is that there is a life-giving fluid within the body that ebbs and flows like the tides. Mm. It flows from the heart to the periphery and then back again in the same blood vessel. And as an extension, uh, they said that air also flows in the same way. So you have air actually pushing the blood back and flow. And that became the standard model for physiology, the ebb and flow of blood, uh, for 15 centuries until the time of Harvey. And and there were just a, a few variations added on to this basic concept. I think the first one was uh, that you mentioned uh, roads and bridges. Well, the what I would like to introduce here is an irrigation system. Hmm. Uh, the Greeks thought of uh, the blood flow as an irrigation system where uh, nutrition is uh, made by the liver, which was their concept in real time from the food and drink that is taken in. And in real time, it flows from the veins, from the liver, through the veins to the periphery, where in real time it is consumed completely, because that's what happens in an irrigation system. The the water flows through the canal, it goes to the crops, and is taken up by the crops. Now, mm. now that idea is is significant because it's a one-way system, and there is no need for anything to return. You see, Hmm. so there's no need for the second part of a circulation to exist. And that was the reason why it took 1500 years uh, uh, for such a a system to be overcome. And and Harvey was the first person who did that. So to to, to just to to clarify, so the the mechanism that, that folks thought was that you know, there is almost like the, uh, if you think about the sea, you have the air movement and then you have the water movement underneath, right? There's always yes, the air that yes. glides a sailboat across the sea. And so in breathing, right, which was the thing that people saw, the assumption was that we were moving air to move blood and that there was a one-way flow from our liver into the end organs. But there, there wasn't really much uh, given to the question of of the the issue of excretion, I want to ask you: How does this relate to the idea of the four humors that that folks might have heard of? So, the blood was one of the humors. What were the others, and and how do we think about yeah. the way that ancient Greeks sort of put this system together? Well, I, I touched upon that uh, briefly earlier. You know, we said that blood was an organ system, and it had uh, it carried hormones and enzymes. And, and other vital uh, ke- chemicals which are useful for the function of the organism. Uh, what we call hormones and enzymes, uh, they called humors. And they basically had thought about uh, humors with four properties, uh, hot and cold, wet and dry. Mm. And if all the humors were in equilibrium, then uh, the body was in a state of health. And if one humor uh, uh, gained predominance, then that's what caused disease. Uh, so it's a it's the same concept, but they use this uh, terminology of the four humors, and, and that actually was the pathophysiology. 
or the way in which diseases occur and uh, and formed that uh, uh, thesis for 1500 years i want to ask also one of the uh, well-known blood related treatments that um anyone who's even had a sort of a casual understanding of of ancient uh, clinical science will know is 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 bloodletting right whether that was was done um by literally just bleeding someone or uh done you know even even more intensely by uh, by by having a uh, another living being suck blood out of someone, how did how did bloodletting figure into their understanding their theory about how what blood was? Because y- you can imagine, right? If if you know that if you bleed enough, you're going to die, the idea of bloodletting seems to be somewhat orthogonal at best, if not entirely counterproductive to to trying to make someone healthier. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that goes back to uh, another aspect of the theory of disease. You know, one of them was the four humors. And uh, uh, the way to to get about that was that if they felt that it was a cold humor that was predominating, then you focused on on uh, countering that with, with hot stuff, what they called, you know... Uh, foods that gave more heat and and thereby you know uh, opposed the the cold humor mm. uh, the the other aspect of disease was uh, spirits evil spirits uh, evil uh, substances dangerous substances that were inhaled or ingested or somehow got into the bloodstream and uh, they attacked a particular organ and caused disease. So the the natural uh, theory, the natural treatment for that was to just get that humor, that evil substance out of the body. Mm. And and you could do it in two ways. Uh, You could do it by ingesting really nasty substances it's actually the philosophy that you you set a thief to catch a thief. So if you have a noxious agent uh, circulating, not circulating, a noxious agent accumulating in one tissue, then the best way to get rid of it is to fill the body with even more noxious substances. So you have, uh, even to the extent of having excretions, forming part of your therapy so that if you take in nasty stuff, maybe you'll drive out that that malignant agent from the body. Hmm. A more direct approach, of course, is to bleed the blood vessel that is attached to that organ. So if, for example, uh, you had a, a disorder in the left side of the chest, pain in the left side of the chest, they believed that the left side was associated with the spleen. And so if you, and they believed that the main artery at the left elbow uh, was the splenic artery. So if Hmm. you cut that artery and bleed from that artery, you'll get all the, the malignant agents in the spleen related to the chest pain on the left side of the body would come out. So really, you you drained out the evil spirits 
and uh, and hoped that you know that would lead to partial recovery. Of course, the danger was that you could overbleed and kill the patient. And an interesting anecdote actually is that of uh, George Washington. When Washington died, uh, he he actually died from bleeding. You know, his original symptoms was just the common flu. He had a cough and a cold, so his physician started to bleed him. And by repeated small bleeds, you know, they they actually pretty much uh, exsanguinated him. And he passed away. And after he passed away, the physicians wanted to actually open up his trachea and and try to do respiration. And it was his daughter who prevented that. So George Washington is an example of recurrent bleedings carried out in the spirit of well-being and healing that eventually killed him. Wow. I want to ask you now, so our common understanding comes from Harvey. How did Harvey discover and and work out the current circulatory system as we know it to exist today? Well, a good question. The answer is that he did it uh, two ways. The first thing was that uh, just around that time, uh, it was published that the veins had valves in them. Now, these valves are little doors. They open and shut but they open and shut in such a way that the blood flow can only go in one way, in one direction. And that direction is from the periphery to the heart. Now, if you think about that, that's totally contrary to the contemporary thinking of Galen's system, where blood is made in the liver, and that's the center, and then goes in the veins to the periphery, So the blood goes from the center to the periphery. And yet the valves in the veins uh, uh, suggested that the blood flows in the opposite direction. Now, Now, Galen's was a hypothesis. What Harvey could see with his own eyes was a reality. And that reality of the veins was uh, duplicable. It was reproducible. No matter which veins he opened in which animal, uh, the veil, the valves all worked in the same way. Mm. So, so this told him that something wasn't right. I think what clinched the 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 deal, so to say, uh, was that he, for the first time, thought about uh, physiology in in uh, quantitative terms. He was one of the first uh, individual to introduce uh, quantitation in in medical thinking. And here's how he came about. Uh, He had at autopsy a a human heart. And so he opened the left chamber of the heart and filled it with fluid. And every time he found that the heart filled up with about two ounces. So what that meant was that if the heart contracted, about two ounces of blood would come out with each uh, contraction. 
And so if the heart were to contract, uh, so the amount of that would be pumped out per minute would be two ounces into, into 72 times, which is the heartbeat. So it will be two into 72, which comes to about 144 ounces per minute. Mm-hmm. And if you multiply that by 60, you come to a, a number which is 8,640 ounces of blood being pumped out uh, every every hour. Now, that's a tremendous amount because if you convert the ounces into pounds, which he did, it comes to 540 pounds. Hmm. So according to their modern theory, which was Galen's theory, 540 pounds of blood are produced in real time every hour by the liver and then is consumed by the tissues in in real time every hour. And remember that that blood comes from the food and drink that is taken in. And it's impossible for anyone to take in 540 pounds of food and drink every hour. So, so clearly there was there was a uh, an illogic phenomenon right there. So, so to, just to, to 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 sort of break that down, so there there are really two pieces, right? It was the recognition that blood couldn't just be moving one way if there were back way valves, right? That 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 was part of it. And then the second part of it was if the heart's moving five hundred and forty pounds of blood every hour. And it's going from one place to another inside the body. Then the only way that, that would be possible is if we were both eating and excreting 540 pounds worth of mass every single hour. So the only way to explain it is that this 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 blood has to be coming back, exactly. right? And, and that's the only that's the only set of explanations. That's that's um that's really quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's that's basically the. And remember, you know, that blood, the the vascular tree uh, was considered an irrigation system. Uh, and, and these numbers made that impossible. Mm. So putting the two together, uh, the impossibility of, of Galen's hypothesis and the reality of veins in the valves, uh, putting those two together, he figured out that... Uh, you know, blood has to be going from the arteries into the veins. He he also did a few ligature experiments where he tied a a ligature on the arm. Uh, actually, he also did it in in fish where he looked at the the aorta and the vena cava, which are the two big vessels uh, in the center of the belly. And when he when he put a ligature uh, uh, tied a ligature on the artery. He found that that the part of the aorta that was distal or away from the ligature uh, just collapsed, and the blood blood started accumulating before the ligature, suggesting that blood flowed in the artery only in one direction, from the heart to the ligature. When he did the same with the vein, the reverse happened. The vein started filling up and bulging distal to the ligature, and that part of the vein that was going to the heart collapsed. Not mm. only did the vein collapse, but the heart itself collapsed, you know, became empty. And when he removed that ligature, everything filled up again. 
suggesting again that in the vein, the blood is going from the periphery to the center and in the artery from the center to the periphery. So putting it all together, uh, circulation was inevitable. So just to, for folks uh, who are listening, ligature is basically a bypass. So if you can bypass uh, a piece of the artery, it'll tell you where blood is moving. And simp- so so he, what he did was he contrasted what happened when you bypassed um, a part of the artery and when you bypassed part of the vein. And just uh, for context, um, you know, the, the our, our current, we, we think of veins as being what's running through our uh, body, which is quite similar to what, what Galen was thinking. But we actually have arteries and veins. Arteries are what carries from the heart to your uh, periphery to your muscles and your organs, and then veins are what carry from your organs back to the heart. And they're actually really, really different. Um, arteries are really, really thick, and they're uh, they're they're intended to sustain all that pressure coming out of the heart. Whereas veins actually have to have those valves because the pressure is so small. A lot of that pressure gets dissipated in the in the peripheries. Um, because the surface area is so much bigger that um, the veins actually have to have those valves that Harvey discovered to keep blood from flowing backwards. Otherwise, it would all pool in our, our organs. And so by by being able to piece all those pieces together, what happens when you bypass arteries versus veins? Uh, why is it that veins have to have these one-way valves? What happens when you know you don't fill the heart back up with blood? He was able to piece this together. Now, um, uh, Dr. Setna, when when he did all these uh, experiments, it's not like people's minds changed immediately, despite the how strong his evidence was. How, how long did it take for um, this understanding of the circulatory system to be adopted? Well, it took another uh, 150 years wow. for that. And uh, the reason is very simple. It's, uh, well, it's the tyranny of ideas. You know, uh, old ideas die hard. And in those days, the most powerful folk in medicine were the academics and the professors. And remember that professors had made their careers. They had written books. They were teaching uh, Galen's uh, uh, physiology. And if Harvey was, in fact, uh, was to become the dominant physiology, uh, even if it was true, it meant that uh, the tenure and the positions of the professors was Mm -hmm. at great risk. Uh, Their very livelihood was at great risk. So it was necessary for them to keep Galen uh, in power and try their best to to, uh, oppose Harvey. Uh, a secondary interesting uh, uh, background is that Harvey's century uh, was a century of religious strife. The Thirty Years' War was going on. Harvey was an Anglican. A lot of Europe was Catholic. And that also contributed because if you look at it, most of Harvey's opponents were Catholics. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of things that happened today in real life uh, that uh, put together uh, led to the opposition to Harvey. You know, given the anecdote that you shared uh, earlier about the the way that George Washington died, uh, you could imagine that if there wasn't such huge opposition to Harvey's discovery, given that it was in the, the mid-1600s, 
that didn't really this didn't really become accepted until 1800 and George Washington's entire life was in that period when we knew right there was enough knowledge out there in the world to have changed the course of his treatment but that it wasn't it wasn't followed um and there was a resistance to following it I want to ask you uh, in just a second about the um, medical implications, but what what does this tell us about the way science moves more generally? Um, you know, do, do you feel like we've gotten better as a society at being able to accept um, these massive changes in paradigm? Uh, or do you feel like we are still in a place where, um, like you said, old ideas die hard? And, and, and how, how much further do you feel like we have to go? Well, I'll answer that by giving you two examples. In the 1800s, as well now is well known, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution uh, was very controversial. And uh, it is still controversial, even today. You know, where in schools today, for example, uh, evolution is not thought, is not taught at all. You know, it, because it, it contradicts uh, uh, genesis. Uh, let's go to the 20th century. What about Einstein's uh, theory of relativity and the whole concept of, of quantum physics? That wasn't accepted right away. That took some time, uh, maybe over the next 25, 30 years, to become, uh, to become maybe the the greatest discovery in in physics of all time. So that continues, you know, mm. and it is likely to continue. It was there in the last century. It was there in the century before that. And it's going to be in our present century also. Yeah, you, you think about um, Selmweis and the germ theory of disease and the fact that, you know, he had demonstrated that the practices that were commonplace, were literally killing people in childbirth, and he was driven out of medicine for it. You know, what's interesting about this is that every moment in history feels like the end of history. Every moment says that we've discovered all there is to discover. We now understand how things work and um, and look at how far we've come. And the danger, of course, is that the more you learn, the more it justifies that there can't possibly be more to learn out there. And it, science tends not to move as linearly as we think it does. It tends to move in fits and starts, and it tends to move sometimes by um, major paradigmatic shifts and changes in what we thought we understood. Now, of course, we have a lot more tools, and the scientific process itself has, has come to be understood. So, you know, people are looking for these paradigm shifts a lot faster. But there is a way in which, um, you know, our minds tend to be ossified to what we see as normal. And so, you know, while it feels from where we sit, looking back at Galen or looking back at uh, Aristotle or, or looking back uh, to the Greeks before that, um, that they were so in the dark and how could they possibly believe what they believe? It's likely that in a hundred years, people will look at what we've been doing and what we're doing and say, wow, how could they possibly believe that? And there's a certain humility uh, to appreciating it, which is part of why uh, I, I'm so excited to, to, to share uh, your story here, because I think it's an important mechanism for understanding how science moves and how sometimes uh, people in the present who are best situated to benefit from changes in science uh, will not just ignore that science, but actually push push against and push back against that science because it implicates um, their own misunderstanding. 
when it comes to, to, to Harvey, so much of medicine is predicated on understanding how blood moves, everything from a heart attack to a stroke. All of those things are about the movement of blood or the failure of movement of blood to different, um, different parts of our, our bodies. How should we understand the, the, the clinical implications of Harvey's discovery today? And what are some of the things that we take for granted today that only were possible because of him? Well, uh, you actually uh, touched on that one of those uh, right now. And that is that if a blood flow is required for maintaining health, then a inference from there would be that a lack of blood flow or an insufficiency of blood flow to an organ could well lead to disease. And that idea has been uh, validated now that in fact heart attacks and strokes both occur because of an insufficiency of blood to the organ because there are blockages or clogging up of the arteries going to those organs. Uh, the other big change, uh, let's say, would be in, in therapeutics. We give a, a, what the circulation means is that if something is uh, introduced at one side directly into the blood, it goes to each and every site, each and every cell in the body automatically because the blood circulates. And what that means is that before Harvey's discovery, the what we now take as commonplace as uh, giving medicines intravenously like chemotherapy, antibiotic therapy, transfusions, would be unheard of. Insulin shots where we give uh, uh, insulin uh, below the skin and it goes to all parts of the body, to each and every cell, happens because of the circulation. Even something like a nasal spray that you take for allergy, you spray in the nose and, and yet the effect occurs you know, say in the lungs, if you have chronic lung disease. All that happens because of Harvey's circulation. And we don't even think about the circulation. It's so routine in our lives. Hmm. Let's, let's think about interventions. I mean, you know, something like a heart catheterization, it's, it's almost normal today. I mean, everyone knows someone who's had a heart catheterization Everyone knows someone who's had a stent put in in some artery. And all that, who's had a pacemaker electrode put in, uh, all that occurs only because blood flows in one direction in the arteries and it flows in reverse direction in the veins. Because you need that, to use a, a, a big word, you, you, you need that unidirectional flow to float the electrodes, to introduce the catheters so that they float directly into the bloodstream where you want it to go to the site where you want to put the stent in. Mm. So all that we, we take for granted. Now, a third idea that I want to introduce is that, you know, we think of the circulation, we've thought of the circulation so far uh, as blood going in a circle inside the body. What about blood going in a circle outside the body? 
what is called mm. extracorporeal circulation. Where does that come in? And, and that comes in in, in uh, interventions like dialysis. Dialysis is nothing else but the circulation of the blood outside the body. The heart-lung machine, chronic kidney disease, the heart-lung machine, you know, which is used for open-heart surgery, and everyone's, you know, knows someone who's had bypass surgery. The heart-lung machine, as the, the phrase implies, is blood going outside the body into a, a lung, artificial lung, which is a membrane oxygenator, to use a technical term, and, and then it goes into an artificial heart, and then it goes back into the body. So you actually have a circulation coming out from the artery, going through the artificial lung, the artificial heart, and then going back into the body. And that concept could only occur if you originally had the concept of a circulation which is intracorporeal or within the body. Even the artificial heart is, is, is nothing else uh, but a circulation going through a device and then entering back into your own body, thus sparing uh, uh, in two ways. Uh, firstly, it could be a permanent uh, structure where you just live lifelong on the artificial heart, or it could be a bridging device where you ease the strain of your original heart, allow the heart to recover, and then you can disconnect the, the person from the artificial heart and let his own heart take over. I mean, all these mind-boggling concepts that nowadays we take for granted would be impossible without the discovery of the circulation, which is why uh, it has been called the greatest discovery in medicine, the circulation of the blood. We really appreciate you to, taking the time today to uh, talk us through um, the way blood moves and how we learned uh, about that and, and what it means for our understanding, both of ourselves, but also of the way that science uh, moves and uh, shapes um, uh, society and, and our ability to, uh, to heal uh, ourselves. Um, that was Dr. Dun Setna. He's the author of The Wine Dark Sea Within. I highly recommend the book. I hope you'll check it out. And um, we really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Well, thank you, Abdul. My pleasure. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. We're learning a lot more about BA5, the most transmissible of the subvariants circulating right now, and the most transmissible subvariant of COVID-19 we have yet to see. While we think about it as an Omicron subvariant, a new paper in the journal Nature demonstrates just how far evolved it is. The distance between BA5 and BA.2.12, which is what was circulating just a couple of months ago, is the same as the distance between Delta and the original SARS-CoV-2. To put it in perspective, compared to BA2, BA2.1.2 was about 80% more resistant to three doses of vaccine. BA5 is four times more resistant. It signals the virus's nearly unbridled ability to evolve and that we could be dealing with COVID for some time to come. Indeed, right now, cases, though slowly, continue to climb. They're up about 15% over the last two weeks. Hospitalizations and deaths are up too. While we now have treatments that are highly effective, this virus is still a threat. Make no mistake about it. Toward that end, 
One of the challenges to these treatments has been getting them in the people's hands. The FDA has now authorized pharmacists to prescribe Paxlovid, which should facilitate getting them to recently infected people faster. On the vaccines front, the speed with which the virus is evolving suggests that so long as we're trying to key our vaccine into old variants, we'll be two to three steps behind, which is why a recent announcement from Pfizer and BioNTech that they've taken a new quote-unquote universal COVID vaccine to trial is welcome news. The hunt is for a universal vaccine, one that keys into an unchanging part of the virus rather than the spike protein the virus is able to switch out with relative ease. Pfizer and BioNTech's version also focuses on T-cell immunity, which could be important to providing longer-term, less variant-specific protection against serious illness. Last week, on July 4th, a 21-year-old man armed with an assault-style rifle killed seven people and injured dozens more in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park, Illinois. It's poignant that this should have happened on July 4th, because sadly, what can be more American than a mass shooting? The shooting took place just 10 days after President Biden signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act into law, the nation's first gun reform bill in over 30 years. What's troubling, though, is that the law probably wouldn't have stopped this shooting from happening. The shooter obtained his guns legally in Illinois, a state with one of the country's strongest red flag laws. That, despite the fact that police had visited his home twice and confiscated 16 knives, a dagger, and a sword on one of their visits. But that doesn't mean that the bill won't do some good in other ways. In fact, it's the biggest expansion of mental health care in American history, and also the biggest expansion of Medicaid since Obamacare. And that funding will expand a system of certified community behavioral health clinics across the country. And regardless of the bunk pretext about guns and mental health, this is a big effing deal. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review the show. It goes a long way. And if you love my explainers at the top of the show, check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Abdul El Sayed, no dash. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts. Our Science Always Wins sweatshirts and dad caps are available on sale. And our safe and effective tees are on sale for $20 off while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz, Ines Mata, and Ella Price. The theme song is by Takara Suzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sammy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.